Welcome to Speaking Out. Mainly discussing land rights and economic empowerment. Aboriginal enterprises in mining, exploration and energy. talk a little bit about uh, Indigenous constitutional recognition. With Larissa Berendt. It's a fresh view coming on ABC Radio. The common sort of belief is that Aboriginal men were treated as equals during the war and that they weren't treated very well after the war. And sort of, that's in general, you could say that. But um, Aboriginal men, when they came into into the um, AIF, they came in on the back foot. First of all, because they're Aboriginal, and society was very prejudiced against Aboriginal people. Black Diggers, the Indigenous response to World War One. This is Speaking Out, I'm Jay McAllister. Each year, Anzac Day serves as an opportunity for Indigenous communities to reflect on the wartime contributions of First Nations men and women. Indigenous Australians have a long history of wartime action. From the frontier massacres of colonial Australia to the story of Anzac and all other conflicts which followed. Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander involvement in the First World War occurred despite a policy restricting a large number of them from enlisting. So how many Indigenous Australians managed to serve? What and who were they fighting for? And how does this involvement impact the need for recognition of Indigenous rights in contemporary Australia? These are just some of the questions we aim to answer on Speaking Out this evening. My name is uh, Pastor Ray Minicon. I'm from the Cubby Cubby people on my father's side, or Gubby Gubby, and uh, Goring Goring on my mother's side. They need to be recognised, and uh, and we just got to bring it out into the open and say, well, our people did fight for this country, and it goes back right back into history, including the Boer War and uh, every other war after that. And our people put up their hands and says, yeah, I'll come out and and join in too, and for a variety of reasons. But they came back without recognition. They didn't. Many of them didn't get their soldiers' benefits and all those kinds of things. Like my grandfather, for example, who fought in the in the light horse, buried up in Gympie in an unmarked grave. And I just think that's an injustice. I'm Philippa Scarlett. I've been interested in World War One Aboriginal service for over two decades now, and I'm the author of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander Volunteers for the AIF: The Indigenous Response to World War One. I think what tells us why the stories have remained silent for so long has been the attitude of the white community. First of all, Australia was fighting to keep Australia white in World War I, and there was such terrible racism and prejudice in Australian society that Aboriginal, I don't think Aboriginal men were particularly valued and their service wasn't valued. Aboriginal families, of course, knew about what their own relatives had, had contributed and they would have liked recognition, very much liked recognition, were bitter that they didn't receive it. That's what I feel about the lack of recognition. It was a white problem, not an Aboriginal problem. Let's break it down. How many people of an Indigenous background enlisted in the war? I put this question to Indigenous liaison at the Australian War Memorial, Michael Bell. At the moment, we've got just a little over 1,200 men that enlisted or tried to enlist, but the lesser number of 857 actually saw active service overseas. Of that 
uh, about 25% rejection rate. We find that 90% of those men were rejected because of race, and that has to do with the restrictions that were put in from the 1903 Defence Act, amended in 1909, which was specifically and prohibited people of non-substantive European heritage or origin enlisting in the first AIF. So what was it like for Aboriginal people who wanted to join the military? And given the treatment of their ancestors, what and who were they fighting for? The enlistment process was the same for everybody. However, because of the um, nature of the separate individual enlisters, Aboriginality was, wasn't automatically precluded. The medical officers at the different... Um, the next stages were the judges, and some of those said, yes, you could go in, and some didn't. Obviously, what we're looking at here is the view of individual medical officers determining the aboriginality or the dark of your skin, the colour of your skin, the tone of your skin. Some of the, some of the um, refusals stayed on there. They were refused because they're Aboriginal. It's as simple as that. Others got in that were clearly of darker complexion and... Um, facial features got in without a problem on their first go. Aboriginal men really didn't live, to a large extent, major extent, they didn't um, state why they, why they enlisted, but um, people have speculated, me included, that recruit, recruitment campaigns were pretty aggressive, mates were joining, brothers were joining, also Aboriginal men, they, they did want to fight for, for their country, I think, and they were, perhaps they involved wanted to fight for their country in the Aboriginal sense, their country. There are those things that um, probably motivate them, motivated them, and there was pay and there was travel. Some people have said Aboriginal men were fighting for rights which they didn't have, and that could well be true, but there's not really documentation during the war um, that that was the case. But after the war, there, there are references to this, particularly... Um, Aboriginal communities mentioned it because they were disappointed that the men had fought and didn't get rights and then there were penalties which were suffered in communities. But one Aboriginal man told me from Sherberg that his father, who was in World War I, said that he had gone to the war because he didn't want his country to be invaded yet again. And there is there was another interesting factor about Aboriginal war service that it was linked to loyalty to the Crown, which was surprising when you think that the Crown was the agency behind Aboriginal dispossession. For those Aboriginal men who did manage to serve, did they face the same discrimination many of their family and friends experienced back home? Here's Philippa Scarlett. Well, yes, this is quite an interesting question because the sort of the common sort of belief is that Aboriginal men were treated as equals during the war and that they weren't treated very well after the war and sort of there's a lot, that's in general, you could say that. But um, Aboriginal men, when they came into, into the um, AIF, they came, came in on the back foot. First of all, because they're Aboriginal, and society was very prejudiced against Aboriginal people. And um, although another common wisdom is we were all mates, I found that when Aboriginal men came into the war, they had to prove themselves. They had to prove themselves in two ways which white people didn't have to do, and who prove themselves as individuals, but also in terms of Aboriginal men as soldiers in combat, um, one example is of Aboriginal men having to prove themselves was that a light horse officer said, we didn't think they were very dependable during 
before we saw them fight, and we were very worried that they wouldn't be able to, to, to make the grade. But after we saw them fight, we changed our mind. So Aboriginal men during the war didn't really have, a, didn't have an easy time. There wasn't the equality which is sometimes emphasised. And also, even when, when Aboriginal men are praised, um, Aboriginal soldiers, by other soldiers, and they're thought of very highly, there's always that qualification. And this appears quite constantly. Although he was Aboriginal, he was a good man or was a brave fellow, despite the fact that he was Aboriginal. All, um, but he, 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 he was Aboriginal, but he was brave. So these qualifications say a lot about the mindset which translated from the general mindset in the Australian community, um, which just didn't suddenly disappear when, when the war started and Aboriginal men went into or went, joined the AIF. Most assume recognition of Indigenous Australians in our military has been a fairly recent undertaking. But it turns out there have been several historical attempts to identify the extent of this involvement. The first efforts that, are, that um, were made to recognise Aboriginal men were made in the 1931 and 1932 when the um, RSL, it was then called the Research, Returned Soldiers and Sailors um, Imperial League of Australia, I think something like that. Anyhow, that, that they decided to publish in their journal, Ravalli, um, lists of Aboriginal men who'd served in Victoria and Queensland and New South Wales. And um, to do that, they, that was a pretty informal process. They approached police stations and managers of missions and also used word of mouth. And that was really the first recognition of Aboriginal servicemen. But I wouldn't place too much store by it in terms of the, the community as a whole because it, it was a very limited publication of Aboriginal service because it was only for a... a, a it was for a veteran audience, basically. It wasn't for a world, for an Australia-wide audience, veterans and their families. But that was really the first step, and they actually managed to identify 245 men. This was far below the numbers which actually, which actually um, exist, but it wasn't too bad. But, uh, what, what, well, nothing really happened. Aboriginal service just sort of sank after these Revalley articles. And I don't think much notice was taken of them. But in 19, the early 1970s, Chris Clark, who was an historian, a military historian, he happened to come across the articles and he realised their significance. And he wrote, he wrote a couple of articles himself based on Aboriginal war service for the military history journal Sabertash. And then following that, I would identify a number of, artic- number of milestones. And they were things like Don Cameron, an um, MP from Queensland, he produced a list of Aboriginal men, servicemen. And then there was um, David Hugginson, who did a wonderful exhibition, Too Dark for a Light, Light Horse. Rod Pratt uh, did a number of articles on Queensland Aboriginal men. And from the Aboriginal perspective, Dorian Catenary wrote Naren Jerry Anzacs. Alec Jacomos and Dennis Fowle, they wrote a, a fantastic book called um, Forgotten Anzacs. That was mainly what was happening in the up to the um, the turn of the century, and then things things um, moved on a bit. There was the National Archives Bringing Them Home project, um, which produced a list of Indigenous servicemen, and actually this and they they publicised this list, and this list raised the number of men from two hundred forty five to up to over six hundred. There were very public events like black diggers, 
the, the play by Wesley Enoch and, and um, Tom Wright. And before that, there was Ray Minikin's Coloured Digger March in Redfern, which is still ongoing. That started in, in um, 2007. Well, as all good stories start, it started in a pub. <laughs> and as you know, in a pub, we solve all the world's problems and then we walk out the door. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, this one here, we sort of walked out the door and said we'd do something about it. And I was talking to a friend of mine. He's a non-Indigenous person. Um, he said, Ray, we've got to do something about this. And so we we conducted a little first our first little Anzac Day ceremony just to give recognition to our own Aboriginal diggers at a little place called Crossroads there in Redfern when I was the minister there. And out of that, uh, we decided to have a march just to... You know, down the streets of uh, Redfern there. On Anzac Day, after the big march had finished, we would come out when everyone's playing two up and having a beer. We said, okay, we'd honour our diggers on uh, on that particular day because that's the day when these things are recognised. Uh, we, we just wanted to invite our own community, but it just turned into this bigger, bigger program that's now with the Colour Diggers March here in Redfern, which is, I guess... Beyond my imagination, it's grown into something that is bigger and greater than all of us uh, and deserves the kind of respect and recognition and the honour due to the people who have served in all of these wars. Organisers said they held a separate service because too often Indigenous diggers were ignored. When you're in the trenches, the bullets aren't worried about the JUCO. You're gone. You are gone. It was based upon a poem by Bert Berros, who was a Canadian, actually, who fought with and or saw the exploits of an of a Aboriginal soldier in the Papua New Guinea conflict, and his name was uh, Private Harold West. He came and joined the colours when the war god's anvil rang. He took up modern weapons to replace his boomerang. He waited for no call-up. He didn't need a push. He came in from the stations and the townships of the bush. He helped when help was wanting, just because he wasn't deaf. He is right amongst the columns of the fighting AIF. He's always there when wanted, when his Owen gun or Bren. He's in the forward area, the place where men are men. He proved he's still a warrior, in action not afraid. He faced a blasting red-hot fire from mortar and grenade. He didn't mind when food was low or we were getting thin. He didn't growl or worry then. He'd cheer us with his grin. He'd heard us talk democracy that preached it to his face, yet knows that in our federal house there's no one of his race. He feels we push his kinsmen out where cities do not reach, and Parliament has yet to hear the abbo's maiden speech. One day he'll leave the army, then join the league he shall, and he hopes we'll give a better deal to the Aboriginal. As the story, the Colour Digger story emerged in our community, the story was not just only about Harold West. Uh, it was about all of us. And I think our Uncle Harold's spirit is now fighting for all that kind of recognition and honour and respect for all Indigenous soldiers. Uh, and there's so many more stories to be told. I can tell you stories that, uh, you know, where an Aboriginal digger from Burke, for example... Uh, you know, he, he got a DCM 
but who would know? He fought alongside his brother over there. and uh, It's only in recent years that his story has been told and uh, his grave now has been properly recognised and he's been recognised. Uh, but how many more stories are like that? So Yamagara Nindali, Des Crump Naya, Murugawea Durambandi. So hello to everyone. My name is Des Crump. I'm an Aboriginal man from uh, Durambandi. Um, so my family links are Gamilaroi Nation and uh, I'm the Indigenous Languages uh, Coordinator at the State Library of Queensland. Yeah, well, all up we found out um, there's about 290 um, men who enlisted from Queensland or had a footprint in Queensland, as we like to say. There's a few from the northern rivers of New South Wales that um, enlisted, say, at uh, Mullumbimby or Mwollumbar, Lismore, Kyogle. They um, they did their training up here in Brisbane and joined from up here. There's quite a number from the uh, the missions, uh, particularly uh, Sherberg, uh, several from Taroom and uh, also uh, Yarrabah up in um, uh, North Queensland. And then we've also... Uh, there's quite a few from uh, Toomala or, or the Old Yaraba Mission along the Queensland-New South Wales border, which is where uh, my family is from. A large number of those men were hoping to enlist to, I guess, get away from that mission life and um, the restrictions uh, of the Protection Act. Uh, some of them sought as a way to perhaps even get an exemption from the uh, Protection Act. Uh, and there's a great story of um, the boys from Baramba, uh, which the Ration Shed um, uncovered in their uh, ANZAC um, 100 uh, project, and we supported supported their research through the State Library. There were 16 Aboriginal blokes who enlisted from um, from Sherberg and um, or Baramba, as it was back then. They came down to Brisbane um, with the mission superintendent, and when they had the recruiting march down uh, George Street, they um, they heard the cry of who's going to fill the empty saddles and these young blokes all jumped up on the horses and rode down the main street as proud as punch and one of them, he didn't quite have enough paperwork because uh, under the Defence Act you needed to have substantially European origin or descent and uh, this bloke didn't have enough paperwork so he was put on the train back to Sherberg or back to Mergen and then picked up at Mergen and uh, at the train station and taken back back home. The other blokes, they stayed at the uh, depot at the training camp for a month and unfortunately the sad part was they here they are, they've enlisted, they've shown that bravery and loyalty and all of them were sent back. They, The army decided that they were, were essentially too Aboriginal, too black to um, to join the, uh, the service. There's a, a set of letters from uh, one of the Blackman brothers up here who was separated from his family at um, at Sherberg and was trying to reconnect with them. And he wrote this scathing letter to the um, to the Queensland government, where he was saying, "Well, when he went and fought for Queen, King and Country, he thought things might get better. He thought that his life would change, but he said, coming back, it's he's just been treated like a mongrel dog." And um, fortunately, there there are some good stories. My great uncle, for example. And two other blokes from the Yaraba mission on the Queensland New South border, just near uh, near Bumai, they had a, a welcome home. Uh, one of the very few examples of a, a welcome home that's been documented or reported. And the Defence Department sent up representatives from Sydney, and um, it was written up in, in several newspapers um, at the time back in 1919. And it was also one of the first memorials for that 
highlighted Aboriginal soldiers. There was the uh, the three of them, Jack Stacey, George Bennett and Charles Turner Bird that won the original uh, war memorial there at uh, Yarraba. And then when Yarraba closed down shortly after, they moved to where present-day Toomala is now near Bogabilla. And they, the um, memorial was moved over there and then it was added later on with the uh, soldiers from the Second World War and then later Vietnam and other conflicts. Another history which has largely gone untold is that of Tasmanian Aboriginal involvement in the war. My name is Andrea Gerard, um, and I have Masters from the University of Tasmania. I'm a historian with an interest in social history and military history. People kept saying to me, oh, I didn't know there were any Aboriginals who served. When I did my project, I had 74, and I think that there's probably, I've been given the names of about probably another three or four from Kangaroo Island who were the descendants of uh, Tasmanian Aboriginal women. Probably one of the trends I observed was the fact that um, these men, the chances of them being um, promoted past the um, point of being a non-commissioned officer was very slim. We have one guy who was uh, made a, l- a lieutenant. He was probably one of the first or the second officer, uh, Aboriginal officer to be commissioned. Also, they probably hadn't been exposed to things like um, uh, respiratory conditions and things like that, so they soon got became ill. Basically, it's the fact that they, their opportunities for promotion were, were slim because who wants to be t- told what to do by an Aboriginal man? If people know, knew that they were Aboriginal, they, they would be looked down on considerably. And why do you think it is that people would have that assumption that no or, or not many Aboriginal men from Tasmania would have served? Um, I think it's most of us simply ignorance uh, um, and not having thought that there's these people. See, there's 18 people from Cape Barren Island. If you look at the population there, that is a lot. Of, nearly all the young men have gone to, to have gone away. And my suspicion is that the um, teacher who was on the on the schoolmaster who was on on the island there was had a background in the British Army, and he thought that he wanted to encourage and def, definitely encourage these men to enlist. Most unusual guard this in all the Empire's army. We meet the only all-Aboriginal squad in the AIF, original Aboriginal Anzac. They're not in the army as a curiosity. They are volunteers in the service of the country they love. They come from Australia's oldest family. They've got a fighting tradition thousands of years old. In the battle dress of the soldier of 1941, hunting through the Australian bush, where once, like black shadows, their ancestors stalked the foe. Here, surely, is one of the strangest sidelights of the greatest war the world has known. With six bayonets instead of the spears their forefathers carried, with bullets instead of boomerangs, the dark-hued diggers go into action. I like the story of Alfred Herbst, I suppose, because he's the one that becomes an officer. Alfred is actually the descendant of um, Dolly Dalrymple, um, a well-known lady from the northwest coast. He's reasonably well-educated. He lives around at Queenstown. At the outbreak of the war, he's working in a, as a clerk um, there and he's also involved with the local um, militia uh, there. So he's got, when he enlists in, in August 1914, um, he's, he's already got some experience. Uh, so he's, he's soon promoted to a, uh, on the 
um, formation of the 12th Battalion, he was soon promoted to the rank of sergeant. So he he enlists very early in the piece. So he's, as I said, he's there when the 12th Battalion is formed at, at um, Pontville Army Camp um, and goes away with the 12th Battalion on Gallipoli. He one stage, I think he probably has has something like a nervous breakdown or whatever, and is sent away. But otherwise, he seems to have managed to, um, with the um, losses that the 12th Battalion uh, had, he is then promoted to the rank of lieutenant, so he's a second lieutenant. So he serves at Mokay Farm, and at Mokay Farm, unfortunately, he is killed in action. Alfred James Ryan, age 22 years, 6 months, height 5 feet 11 inches, weight 174 pounds, complexion dark, eyes brown, hair brown, religion Roman Catholic. Well, Alfred Ryan, he was one of a group of Aboriginal soldiers. It's a very small group, as far as we know, who actually wrote letters home. And these are extraordinarily valuable. And um, he, he was a shearer. He came from, from the Peak Hill district of New South Wales. And he was Wiradjuri. Like some other Aboriginal people might have lived in town or they were so, sort of separated from their communities in some way. But he, he grew up in an Aboriginal community. He volunteered in 1915. He served with the 3rd Battalion and 2nd Battalion and later with the Machine Gun Company. And he was one of the 75 um, Aboriginal men we know to have served at Gallipoli. He served on Gallipoli and was wounded. And by 1916, he was in France. And on the 25th of September, he was killed near the Eat Manion Road. And uh, when his remains were identified, because he wasn't found immediately, one way of identifying him was the fact that they found his Afranzac badge, which was given to men who served at Gallipoli. His letters home, I think, are pretty interesting. But first of all, I should mention why the letters actually existed, because he wasn't only a soldier, he was actually a New South Wales heavyweight boxer. He wrote letters home back to his friends in the boxing world, and then these letters found their way into the press. Now, for me, I've just made three points about the letters, which I think I find I find very notable. First of all, his description of um, of what happened in the trench he was in in Gallipoli, and um, second was his generosity because he not only talking about Australians, he also talks about the Greeks and talks about Indians and and New Zealanders. The landing took place within half a mile of where thousands of Greeks were simply massacred trying to force a landing which they never succeeded in doing some time back. We are strongly entrenched on the peninsula now, inland about two miles, with the New Zealanders on our left flank. They are deserving of equal praise. But um, what for me is the most notable part of part of his letters is that while he was, he was writing, while the campaign was actually underway, but at the same time he showed his understanding that this was an important campaign for Australia and for Australian histories. What he wrote about the landing, I'll just quote, and, and I think it's important, he wrote, the landing was never to be forgotten ever in the history of the world. Australia may well be proud and boast of her loyal sons. But the irony of that was, and it didn't occur to him, and um, that for so many years this didn't apply to Australia's Aboriginal sons. 
Thomas Williams, age 41 years, three months, height 5 feet 8 inches, weight 111 pounds, complexion dark, eyes brown, hair black, religion Church of England. Thomas Williams is an example of the lack of consistency in the um, actions of the recruiters because he was one of the number of men who were able to, to serve overseas but only after enlisting the second time. He was um, a Gamilaroi man and he, he enlisted, first of all, in 1916, in January 1916. He joined the 33rd Battalion, but uh, and inexplicably, three months later, he was discharged. It was an honourable discharge. But um, it does, there's no mention in his service record that he was discharged because of race, but I think it's quite likely. Well, he then waited, waited three months, and then he did what a lot of other Aboriginal men did, and he's typical of them. He applied again, but what he did was he changed his details. He changed his age, he changed his place of birth, and he changed his place, changed his place of enlistment. It was Narrabri this time. And he also changed his name, but he didn't, didn't change his next of kin. So he served until 1919 in Egypt. He served with the Sixth Light Horse, and he also served with the um, Army Service Corps. But when he came home in 1919, he decided he did not want to be under the strictures of the Aborigines Protection Board, and he wanted freedom from that. And that was possibly because of the sort of freedom he experienced in the Army. So he settled at a, an, in an Aboriginal community with salt pan on the Georges River near Sydney, and he, which was free, seemed to be pretty free from the, um, the domination of the board. And he um, changed back his name back to Tom Williams and he got married. But um, what I think his service is important because, as I said, it shows the lack of consistency in approach of the recruiters and that they couldn't ignore the divisions of the Defence Act. And... Um, and I think the fact that these recruiters were so inconsistent is probably one reason by the fact by the fact that Aboriginal men kept on reapplying because they realised that this was so. Jerome Locke, age 44 years, 5 months, height 5 feet 6.5 inches, weight 132 pounds, complexion dark, eyes brown, Hair dark. Religion, Church of England. Jerome Locke was a Darragh man and he was from the Sydney area and he was the grandson of Mariah Locke, and she's famous amongst other things because um, she had a white convict assigned to her as a servant and she actually married him. And his great grandfather was Yaramundi, who was the leader of the Burraburongal clan of the Darragh. So through this heritage, he's linked to invasion times and pre-invasion time, times. And prior to World War I, he was a member of a colonial force. He was a member of the Windsor Rifles. He had no trouble enlisting in the Windsor Rifles. And there's a great picture of him in his uniform for, for this unit. And he was also a crack shot and a, um, a prize winner in competitions. Um, in 1916, he and two of his sons enlisted They'd previously been in an enlistment, in an enlistment, one of those enlistment recruiting matches, the Rifle Reserve 1000. They enlisted successfully. He served with the 
the 36th and the 53rd Battalion in France. But he didn't serve for very long because before the end of 1916, he was hospitalised with trench foot. And then he was sent home and discharged. I don't think there's, um, I don't think he, he was, he was sent home and discharged because of reasons of race. I think that the reason I think, and I think it's pretty clear, was that he was, he was quite, he was not a young man. Although he said he was 41, actually he was probably at least 10 years older and the trenches would not have been a very hospitable place for, for an older man. But, um, Jerome wasn't deterred. In and in 1919, he volunteered for the AIF again. And by, in 1919, the war was still officially not over. The Treaty of Versailles hadn't been signed. So he volunteered in 1919 and he was attached to a unit which had escort duties, escorting German deportees. But what I think um, distinguishes his career and what's notable about his career is well, one thing is his age, because when he volunteered in in 1919, this time his details remained roughly the same apart from his age. And his age, he said, this time was 51, but it's quite likely it was a few years older than that. So this makes him one of the old, possibly the oldest Aboriginal man to serve in World War One, And his service is distinguished too because of its span um, from... 1889 to 1919, which is, it encompassed a period of about 30 years. But um, the third thing about to say about his service is the fact that he was possibly the first Aboriginal man to serve on land in a colonial military force. Frederick Prentice, age 21 years, 4 months, height 5 feet 11 and a half inches, weight 167 pounds, Complexion dark, eyes brown, hair black. Religion Protestant. Frederick Prentice was a member of what today is known as the Stolen Generations, and he's also one of those Aboriginal men who actually was awarded a medal, awarded, give God a bravery award. And his story is quite a tragic one. Um, he was born in Powell Creek in the Northern Territory. His mother was a jingling woman and his father was white. He was fostered by the telegraphist at the Powell Creek Overland Telegraph Station and his wife. They were elderly people. Um, some years later, they moved to South Australia, where Frederick was sent to a private school, to Carr College, which became Scotch College. And he excelled in, in music and also in sport, in, in cricket and in, um, and in football. And in 1915, he volunteered. And he served, he served in France. And um, on, in July, he was in Pozier, in the Pozier, vicinity of Pozier in July 1916, near Mouquet Farm. And, and this was where his actions earned him his gallantry award. And he was awarded the military medal. And this was for bringing um, guns and ammunition up to the front under heavy enemy fire. And he returned home in 1919. And um, when he returned home, he received a hero's welcome. He was associated with, he was described as a fine type of man and a man of he had manly bearing and he was applauded by them. But from then on, really, things started to go wrong for Frederick. His parents were elderly, his foster parents, and they died. He lost connection with his foster family. Um, the next 30 years or so, he spent it mainly in mining towns in Western Australia and in the Northern Territory. 
And um, he seems to have been increasingly solitary. He didn't marry. We don't know anything about his friends. And by 1957, he died. In 1957, he died. He was found in his camp. He'd rolled into the fire and he was badly burnt and possibly died from some, some other causes. No one really knew much about him. His name was known and he had mentioned someone who'd been in the war and he was buried in an unmarked grave. So really, his story was lost. But uh, things, although he was dead, things did took a turn for the better in 1991 because um, Christine Kramer and Eric Catterall were related to the Kells, decided to investigate the family story of this young Aboriginal man who'd been fostered, young child. Since then, uh, efforts are being made to, um, to, name, to find his grave and to, to, to note his war service on his grave. But um, it is a tragic story, and um, I think a lot of his tragedy is associated with the fact that he was removed from his family. But um, his recognition in later life, in, in, in death, um, also extended to the has extended to the fact that, that we've been able to find a portrait of him. I identified it from an unknown portrait of the Womamora, and it echoes the description I've mentioned before of his manly bearing. And in 2015, this portrait was projected on the on the one of the pylons of the Harbour Bridge. So he did achieve achieve recognition. But this was after he died. Basically, as I said, his life was tragic, and perhaps a really tragic, sad footnote to his life is that. A few years ago, his military medal was found on a rubbish heap outside Catherine. Robert George Garner, age 24 years, 9 months, height 5 feet 6 inches, weight 135 pounds, complexion very dark, eyes brown, hair black, religion Church of England. Robert George Garner is an Aboriginal man who served in the First World War. His, his Aboriginality comes from the Port Stephens area. It's Waramai. He's distinguished by the fact that he's that in addition to his Aboriginality, he had African American heritage. He was 24 when he volunteered in November 1915, and he served with the 17th Battalion in France. Robert's story is a personal one for me. He served alongside his brother Elias McAllister, my great-grandfather. Well, Robert is fairly rare because he's one of 21 Aboriginal men that were POWs in the First World War, and his connection to his brother is very coincidental, as Robert was captured at the um, First Battle of Bullencore in April of 1917, and his brother Elias was wounded in the Second Battle of Bullencore in May that year. So they're in the same area, they're fighting the same fight, but the two different divergent results for the men result in Robert being captured and going on to serve in and throughout the um, labour camps and also back to Germany, and his brother being wounded and brought home in 1918. His service would have been that those larger battles in the later 1916, he enlists in 1916, gets over and served through his training camp and is allocated to the 17th Battalion, and they get onto the Western Front in late 1916. And from there, he's back and forward. He's had some rest, he has some medical issues, and he starts getting his wounds. He gets gassed. We find that he suffered gas poisoning and the effects of being gassed, which was a tactic being used by the Germans in the First World War. And a lot of the men that were on the front lines would have suffered that same 
a fiction at the uh, at the time, and you find that um, it all depends on how quickly they could get their respiratory equipment on or off, and that would you will find that those incidents happen across his battalion and his companies. I've often wondered what life would have been like in these prison camps. Life for captured prisoner of war's uh, soldiers is very hard at the first because Robert's a, a uh, non-commissioned officer, he's a private, and he's subject to the labour and he's working to provide the, the labour for the Germans on the way back through the lines. On the front lines, he's in the, in the high-risk areas. He's probably taking ammunition to the front lines, taking rations to the troops. But then as he moves back, because he's wounded, he gets treated medically and his leg is not in a good condition from his wound. He gets treated back through the medical evacuation route on the um, Western Front through the Germans and he gets put into internment camps in, in Germany in the end. His time in the prisoner of war camp was not a pleasant time, but there was one positive from his POW experience, and that was that he was actually able to be, he was photographed. There was a French prisoner of war who photographed other prisoners of war. He put this in in an album, and this album surfaced in the 21st century and was was bought by a collector who actually put the images online. And I think this is one of the the more beautiful photos of an Aboriginal serviceman because despite the the terribly adverse conditions he was in. Um, he stands there very proudly and he's showing pride in his um, membership of the AIF. My name is Ian Rofdorft. I'm from Belgium. I found Mr. Garner's photograph on an auction website. The album belonged to uh, a French soldier, Mr. Emile Landsberg. And there are also a lot of portraits of him in the book. Normally you, f- you find uh, one or two or three pictures, not, not a complete album. So it got my attention and the sellers showed me only a few pictures. And all of these pictures were from French prisoners of war. So when I finally got the album, I was surprised there were also uh, pictures from English earlier in it and also one picture from an Aboriginal digger. And it was not glued in the album, so I I could take it out. And when I turned it to the backside, I saw there was a name on it, Mr. Garner, and also the name of his village. The man in the picture, Mr. Garner, he looked also very proud in the picture. Looked healthy, well-fed. And not like most pictures of prisoners of war. It's one of only three known photos of Aboriginal POWs in the First World War. He's showing that he did serve, then he's in a lesser known aspect of the service. He's a POW, he's got his wound stripes on there, but it's the image of an Aboriginal man in a POW camp, which was a lesser known story of the even lesser known story of Aboriginal service. The purpose of these photos, Jay, is to tell their story, send them back home. These photos would have been turned into a postcard and on the back it would have just sent a little a name and address as a normal postcard and it's just to tell your mum and dad that you're healthy. He's looking clean. He's, he's you know, he, Although he's not smiling in there, you can tell he's healthy and it's a propaganda photo. Being allowed to have been taken in a prisoner of war camp is the Germans telling 
the Australian people that they're treating their prisoners well. And in return, they're looking to that exchange, say, you look, we look after your prisoners, you look after our prisoners. So they've treated him well. It's about a propaganda and it's messages that it's sending out to the Australian people through the community that we are treating your prisoners well, but also that they're treating people of colour and accepting people of colour extremely well. I've come to see Robert's daughter, Faye. She turns 89 this year, but she's still going strong. I want to see how she remembers her dad and ask if she knew much about his time in the war. Hello, Jay. Come in. How are you going? Oh, I'm going good, thanks. Good How are you, you going? Good to see you. Yeah, good to see you too. What are some of the memories of your dad? Obviously, he died when you were when you were five or six. But do you have any memories of him growing up, or memories that your mum told you about him? Uh, yes, I do have memories of my father playing the guitar, and uh, he used to sing too. But I. He used to uh, busk in the streets of Newcastle and he did try to teach me how to tap dance. Well, my uh, mother did talk about his, uh, my father's war service uh, but did not say much about it. You know, they didn't talk about it much at all. And uh, the same with um, Uncle Elias. He never spoke about it either, you know, so... Uh, my father uh, was injured in the war. He was shot in the leg and gassed, which would have caused his illness, problem with his lungs. It might have turned to cancer, I believe. Yeah. Now, a key element to this story is the photo that, that um, emerged of your dad um, can you tell us your thoughts on, on that photo and, and what that means to you? Oh, it meant such a lot. Um, yes, I was really amazed about that photo um, of my dad. Um, and, uh, yes, really amazed that uh, uh, it happened that way. It was just a chance in a million, you know, that that would turn up. I knew the photo was an important piece of our family history, so I wanted to get it back. It was, I think, one of the most unique pictures in my collection, but it's more important that it's now where it belongs in Australia with his daughter. Well, I've managed to, to track down the original photo of your dad. I've got it here, and I wanted to, uh, to let you have it. Oh my goodness. That's the original. That's the original. Original copy. Oh, that's wonderful. Yes, thank you very much. I'm sure that, uh, yeah, he was holding onto that chair for support, I would say. Yeah. In that photo, yes. Oh my goodness, I'll have to think about what I'll do with this photo. Um, yes, I'll have to give it some thought, but I'll cherish it. Like many of his peers, Robert was buried in an unmarked grave. But after his story became more well-known, the Department of War Graves awarded him a new commemorative plot and headstone. 
Oh, there it is. There's the grave. Oh, doesn't it? It's really nice now, isn't it? Yeah, no. They've done good. a wonderful job. You happy with yes, it? Yes, I'm happy with it. Yes. Uh, and many thanks to the Department of War Graves for, for doing this because uh, uh, my father certainly, he deserved it. How about so, these some flowers for him then, eh? Yes, okay. Yes, maybe rest in peace. Sometimes when this place gets kind of empty Sound of the breath fades with the light Dear sir, I'm writing to ask if you would kindly forward me a duplicate of my military discharge, which I have unfortunately lost. My particulars are as follows. Private R.G. Garner, 5015, returned badge number 98779. Yours sincerely, Robert George Garner. Lord, the
That's Jimmy Little with Under the Milky Way. The sound design for this program was by Tim Jenkins. And that's the show for this week. Join us again next week when we bring you a focused discussion on Aboriginal deaths in custody. Speaking Out is on Facebook and you can email the program. Speaking Out at abc.net.au. We would love to hear from you. I'm Jay McAllister, and this is Speaking Out.